This is Gulf Coast Life Arts Edition from WGCU. I'm John Davis. Thanks for joining us. The Southwest Florida Symphony's current season continues February 3rd with a concert dubbed From Darkness to Light. This third concert of the season's Masterworks series features a guest soloist from right here in Southwest Florida, multi-award winning pianist Alexandra Carlson. She'll be performing Prokofiev's Piano Concerto No. 3, which is widely regarded as the composer's most celebrated piano concerto, and is perhaps his most challenging for the featured artist. Carlson resides in Naples, but she performs solo and chamber piano all over Europe, Russia, and the U.S. She's won prizes from the London International Piano Competition, the Valentino Bucci International Competition in Italy, the Maria Udina International Piano Competition in Russia, and the Hope's Tales Masters Competition in Bulgaria, among others. Carlson also garnered a fellowship with the Boston Symphony Orchestra through the New Horizons Project, and a contemporary ensemble fellowship through the Atlanta Music Festival, during which she performed 23 different world premiere pieces in just one month. She's done a number of professional recordings, including her 2019 album, Parallax. She also teaches piano performance and chamber music as an adjunct professor at Ave Maria University in Collier County. And the program for the February 3rd concert also includes works by two different Czech composers, Gideon Klein's Partita for Strings and Antonin Dvorak's Symphony No. 8 in G Major. Ahead of the concert, we're taking a closer look and a conversation with Southwest Florida Symphony Music Director and Maestro Radu Pupanyu, who joins us uh, by phone today from San Francisco. Radu, welcome back to the program. John, thank you so much for, for having us back uh, again. I always say you've been so generous with your time, and it's become this wonderful tradition to, to come and share with you before before a concert. It almost doesn't feel right if this doesn't happen to, to, to go on with the concert. So this is wonderful, and we really, really appreciate it. Oh, I totally agree. <laughs> Robert Van Winkle <laughs> is back with us in studio as well. He's the Symphony's Community Outreach Ambassador. Robert, always a pleasure. Thank you. I'm so glad that you're, again, uh, echoing Radu's sentiments that you have us on. And to engage with us and your fellow listeners about this conversation or any of our shows, find us on Facebook. We're at W. WGCU Public Media. On X, formerly Twitter, we're at WGCU. Use the hashtag GCL. So I just want to skip to the main course and then we'll work our way back. Is there just one main course? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, uh, the the piece with uh, Alexandra Carlson, of course, um, yeah, yeah. she, if I'm understanding correctly, last performed with the symphony in 2021, Ravel's Piano Concerto in G Major. So it sounds like you've got a pretty well-established relationship with this particular artist. Yeah, that is, that is absolutely true. Uh, Alexandra, she has a wonderful relationship with the orchestra. I think this will be the third time she will be soloing with our orchestra. What I absolutely love about this is that she is a world-class pianist that is based in Southwest Florida. She lives in Naples. And uh, it's very important to my mission as music director to really have an orchestra that's truly dedicated and truly relevant in its community. And if we have world-class talent right here in Southwest Florida, it just seems like the most natural thing to present this talent. I have collaborated with uh, with Sasha on many different occasions. She's absolutely wonderful, and I, I cannot wait to, to collaborate uh, again. And also, she, she's playing Prokofiev's third piano concerto. It's one of the most virtuosic pieces uh, in the repertoire. And a wonderful fact is that both her and Prokofiev, they both studied piano at the St. Petersburg uh, 
conservatory. So I think that's another uh, wonderful, very intimate connection there. Yeah, many years apart, I'm assuming, but uh, that's a <laughs> <laughs> hundred or so. Yeah. Um, so as you had just mentioned, Prokofiev's Piano Concerto Number no. Three being, you know, perhaps the most virtuosic, like you're really going to be putting her to work. Was this her selection or yours? We had a, we had a discussion, and uh, I, I love the music of Prokofiev. I was introduced to it very early when I was still a student in Romania. I remember I was I first played there was the Prokofiev Violin Concerto. I, I think I was twelve, but it was probably a little bit too early for a piece like that. But I was amazed by the music, and as soon as I mentioned the name of the comp- composer, she was just all in. I mean, she, she was so incredibly excited uh, about this, and I think we're both in the orchestra extremely excited. And acoustically speaking, there's really no bad seat in the house at the Barbara B. Mann. But for those in the audience positioned to be able to see Carlson's hands working the piano, are they going to get a bit of an extra treat? I, I mean, the fingering and phrasing seems particularly challenging at some points. I mean, her hands are going to have to be on top of each other as they move in octaves up and down the piano. I guess just how would you characterize this piece, Radu? When we say it's one of the most virtuosic pieces in the repertoire, it's really true. A, a little bit the reason for that is that Prokofiev himself, so he studied piano at the St. Petersburg Conservatory and also also composition. But it's very important to remember that he was a true virtuoso on the piano. He had incredible facility and he, he really, at, at first he wrote these pieces with himself in mind as a soloist. And actually he premiered, he was the one who premiered this piece and the premiere it happened in the United States. With, it in was Chicago, with the Chicago right? Symphony, yeah. Chicago Symphony Orchestra, indeed. And the piece itself, it's uh, the form. I guess you would call it a little bit unusual because we have a very fast first and third movement. Of course, the introduction, which is also the second theme later in the first movement, it's on the slower side. But the rest of the piece, in the first and the third movements, it's really pretty much like a perpetuum motion. It's this almost this incredible chase that never seems to end. The, the second movement is a little bit more intricate in the sense that it's really a theme and variations. The, the theme itself is very, very theatrical. And I really wanted to mention that because everything in Prokofiev's music seems to be a, a gesture and you see a lot of music that sounds very, very theatrical that you could uh, act to or you could imagine a silent film happening to it and uh, some of the variations there are five variations total and then the the theme comes back uh there are a a couple really fast variations but there's also a a slower variation in the middle of the second movement that's where prokofiev really fulfills this idea of the second movement being usually you're expecting something of a lyrical slower tempo, but we do get this extended gorgeous uh, variation in the middle. But yeah, it's, it's really the whole piece. You can think of it as a perpetual motion. It's a continual chase and it's extraordinarily uh, excited. You, you almost cannot sit still in your, in your chair while you're listening to it. Yeah, Prokofiev himself characterized the third movement as an argument between the soloists and the orchestra, so certainly uh, indicative of that theatrical quality you've been talking about. Robert, uh, I know you've been, um, you know, preparing and researching. You're going to be giving a presentation to, you know, geared towards kids who come to the show. But whether or not this will be included in what you've been learning, um, what can you tell us about some of the context? Well, I want, I'm curious whether Radu will uh, appreciate this or not, but when I was researching this, uh, one word kept popping up about Prokofiev's third piano concerto, and that was sardonic. And I, I had to kind of think, really, what, what, why, why, what does that mean exactly when it comes to piano music? But if you think about it, some of the other words could be, you know, a little bit by 
biting a little bit, caustic, a scoffing, uh, you know, kind of cynical in some manner. Uh, in the second movement, Radu, I don't know, there even seems to be a place where the it doesn't sound like they're in major, one's in a minor key, one's in the major key, they're sort of fighting back and forth, and you can kind of picture this person with a sort of sardonic smile going, ha ha, yes, that's why. I, I really love that word, and I think it, I really think it describes the music very well. I think it, it also points a little bit at Prokofiev's uh, character and his personality. He was externally yeah. intelligent and very witty, and many times there would be many references in the music where perhaps he's pointing at something, but he might be thinking something else mm -hmm. as well. There's always a lot of meaning behind these uh, these gestures. And I, I think sardonic is the perfect word for it. All right. Well, that's what my young people are going to learn at the uh, at my lecture. After yours, <laughs> you'll talk to the adults at 6.30. I'll talk to the kids at 7 out in the lobby, and I'm going to teach them what sardonic means. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Rado, you had mentioned, um, and I was surprised to learn in my own research, Prokofia having performed the piano soloist part at the premiere in 1921. Would that have been a common thing in the you know world of classical music composition and performance a century ago? Yes, uh, you're absolutely right, John. And that, that is a little bit, it's, it's an art that uh, I wish you would keep going to a, to a larger extent. What, what used to happen, and we have this both with a lot of uh, pianists, uh, cellists, and also violinists, you would have these virtuosos on their instruments, and they would be so incredibly well-trained in their schools in areas such as composition and harmony and counterpoint, and what used to happen, they really, they used to, to write a lot of repertoire for themselves. And it was a very exciting thing because you get, oh, this virtuoso is coming to town and they're playing their own composition. And it was wonderful for them as well because they would get to write things that they knew they could perform extremely well. So their, their compositions were geared towards uh, themselves. It's really a wonderful a wonderful tradition that used to happen more in the romantic era and i we we can think in the in the violin world all the way to to paganini being this incredible virtuoso and starting to write all these uh, incredibly difficult pieces for himself because he had this this huge uh, huge hand and other people uh, at first thought oh this is not even uh, even even playable it's only playable by him but now now we know that many many other people can do it it's just, it was, it was really a wonderful, wonderful tradition. And I think it's the reason why we also, we have so much wonderful repertoire from that period of time that we're still performing today. And a lot of variety in that period of time. Turning to Alexandra Carlson herself, you know, perhaps outside the context of this particular program, um, kind of known for her advocacy for contemporary works and composers. I've certainly noticed in, in programs you've put together in recent years, you seem to share that passion. Is that something you've been able to bond over, perhaps? Yes, and once again, what is so wonderful about Alexandra is that not only is she a world-class pianist, but she also dedicates a lot of professional time to the Southwest Florida community. So over the past, I have been in the area for now the past six years and a half, we have collaborated on so many different occasions in an orchestral setting. We've also played a lot of uh, chamber music together. I, I have performed with her playing my violin numerous, numerous times. And uh, I, I am aware that she's doing a lot of contemporary music. I'm not sure that the two of us have performed together uh, contemporary music in a small setting like that yet, but it's something that I also share. I think it's 
incredibly important for uh, musicians of today to play the music uh, of today because in this way we keep that music uh, alive and there, there's really there's so much out there and i think being a musician we always uh, need to remain curious and dedicated to promoting new music and on the program for this upcoming masterworks concert we've got prokofiev's piano concerto kind of sandwiched between works by two czech composers gideon klein and dvorak was this kind of an intentional effort to foster some continuity within the program yes with the, with the czech composers uh, absolutely and uh, their, both their music is very much inspired by Bohemian music. The, the way I became familiar with the work of Gideon Klein, I was still a student in conservatory in Los Angeles at the, at the Colburn Conservatory. And uh, the music director of the Los Angeles Opera, uh, James Conlon, he had started this wonderful project. It's called Recovered Voices. And the idea was to promote and perform music of composers who were either affected or silenced by the Holocaust, which, which happened during World War II. And what, what happened, there was a, a concentration camp called Theresienstadt. Uh, that's the German word. It's a, Theresien is a, is a town in, in Czech Republic. And it was one of the only camps where some artistic uh, activity was allowed and a lot of artists were were brought there and a number of really really excellent very very good composers their names i i, I would like to mention some names pavel haas gidon klein victor woolman hans Krasa. well gidon klein was was taken to this concentration camp where for a period of about three years he was able to continue some some artistic activity he later he he lost his life in a subcamp of Auschwitz. He was later transferred to Auschwitz, and uh, he lost his life at Fürstengrube, which was a coal mining sub subcamp of Auschwitz. And the piece we are going to perform was really was finished nine days before he was transferred to Auschwitz. It, it's incredible that the piece to this day still exists. It was originally written for a string trio, was supposed to be played by a violin, viola, and cello, but later on it was arranged by somebody else for uh, this uh, string orchestra version that we are going to perform. It's a wonderful piece of music. That you, you hear two clear influences in his music. One is the, the second Viennese school, perhaps influences of Schomburg and Webern. Uh, but also it is deep rooted in uh, both bohemian uh, folk song and the second movement is really a theme and variation on a bohemian folk tune it is really fascinating but both uh, the pieces on the first half the second movement it's a theme and variation in both cases and we can claim that the last movement uh, of borzak symphony number no. 8 is also a a theme and variation. So that's another wonderful uh, connection in the program. But really performing this piece is really a very special project because we are able to keep this music alive. It is wonderful music and I think it's it's a very important mission. Earlier before we got you on the line, Robert and I were lamenting that there hasn't been a film made about Klein yeah. um, just because of his and I didn't know that this impactful. piece was it, go ahead. survived only by, what, a few days, probably yeah. nine days. And now, didn't he um, entrust his music before he was sent to Auschwitz to other people in the camp to keep it safe? That's why it survived? Yeah, I, I think it was to his uh, his last girlfriend, and then she was able to reconnect with his sister after. So that's how we are able to play it today. Yeah, wow. yeah. I mean, but it's a whole other story how we even 
have the music now. So it's just really fascinating. Radu, do you think knowing a bit about that historical and, and contextual background can foster a greater appreciation for the work, even if maybe the music itself isn't directly engaging with the situation of the camps? I think so. And I, I think it just shows to me what is truly amazing is that under these these circumstances, these composers, they really continue to be dedicated to their art and they continued to write music on a almost daily basis. And I know that Didon Klein, he was involved in organizing concerts at the, at the concentration camp and he was doing everything in his power to continue to make music. And even the idea that he knew he was going to be transferred to Auschwitz in a few days and the idea of foreseeing this and giving the music to somebody else. And it turns out the same thing happened before he was initially transferred to Theresienstadt. He put all the music that he had written prior in a suitcase and gave it to somebody else in town. And I believe this was later discovered in in the same suitcase that he put it on but somewhere in the 80s or 90s much much later but that's when we became once again familiar with a few more works that he had uh, he had written i just find this this incredible dedication to to the art under such circumstances to be absolutely uh, incredible it needs to be a movie yeah. It really does. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to get it started, Robert. Yeah, let's do it. Um, you know, and you've touched on this, Radu, but, but Klein's work overall is said to reflect these two distinct general tendencies, one reflecting the, you know, his Czech roots and one kind of his affection for works of composers of the second Viennese school. Where on that spectrum would you say the partita for strings falls? Does he manage to bring in both of those influences in this piece, do you think? Yes, I think in the first movement you hear a little bit of second Viennese school. He's hinting at it in terms of tonal language, but also a little bit about the general texture of the music, also rhythmically speaking, the way certain things are grouped. You constantly go between something what you'd have considered normal writing until the beginning of the 20th century, which alternates with these moments of sounding a little bit experimental for that period of time. And the same thing happens in the second movement in the theme and variation. You'd have the theme sounds pretty much like what you'd expect, uh, not too far from Borzak in certain ways, because the, the material is so it's so similar in terms of where it came from. But you go into into variations that are uh, once again experimenting he's constantly experimenting with uh, with something and the 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 third movement is once again fast it, to me it's almost reminiscent uh, uh, a little bit of uh, stravinsky concerto uh, in the i know there's absolutely no no connection there but it, it you get the same kind of feeling once again a little bit like a perpetual motion chase like music well, if you're just joining the show, we're delving into the program of the Southwest Florida Symphony's next Masterworks concert, February 3rd, in a conversation with the symphony's maestro, Rado Papanyu, and community outreach ambassador, Robert Van Winkle. If you'd like to comment on our conversation or engage with fellow listeners, again, we're on Facebook at WGCU Public Media and on X at WGCU. Use the hashtag GCL. So after intermission, audiences are going to be treated to Dvorak's Symphony Number no. 8. Um, this was written in 1889. How would you characterize this symphony, Radu, particularly in contrast to Dvorak's other works or, or even just 
what was the popular style at the time. It seems like a bit of a departure. It is a little bit. He wrote Symphony Number no. 7 uh, before, which was very much a romantic work in, in every sense of the word. And in a way, Symphony Number no. 8 is a much more much more positive throughout piece. And I think it's really Dvorak at his best. He's in the, the material that he feels most at home. This is uh, pretty much everything in the piece is inspired by Bohemian uh, music, Bohemian dance, uh, Bohemian folk music. And uh, the other thing that's very interesting is that the, the piece sounds very happy and, and positive, but there's also a lot of minors throughout the the work, which it, it's very interesting how it can still give this incredible positive outlook on the work. But I think that that happens because he's he's so brilliant at alternating the two. It's very uh, interesting. The the last movement sounds uh, starts with a with a fanfare. The trumpets are really singing out, basically playing uh, this wonderful fanfare, and there's this fantastic line by the Czech uh, conductor Rafael Kubelik. In a rehearsal, he, he said in, in, uh, in Borzak's music, the trumpets never call to battle, they always call to, call to dance. And then I mm. think that describes overall the, the spirit of this, uh, this piece, very, very positive, very, very dance-like. Uh, another interesting for me, very interesting element in the in the second movement, I think it's very important to uh, to remember that uh, initially Borjak studied viola and he played viola in a theater orchestra for about nine or or ten years. I believe he was a principal violist, and he really he got to work with uh, Richard Wagner conducting, and I think he he really loved Wagner's music. And there there are a few moments in the slow in the second movement where you can very clearly hear that the dramatic Wagner influence, both in the texture that the orchestra is exploring and in the harmony as well. And also it is impossible to, to talk about Dvorak without mentioning uh, his mentor, really, Johannes Brahms. And uh, I think when we talk about Dvorak, we always have to pay tribute a little bit to Johannes Brahms, because it is possible that if Brahms did not discover Dvorak, we would not have these works in the repertoire today. Basically what happened at some point, Dvorak quit his viola job because he wanted to dedicate his full time to composition. That's that's truly what he wanted to do, but it was financially extremely difficult to do that. And he was able to get by by teaching piano lessons. That's how he also fell in love and met his future wife and that's a, there's a fascinating story there if I, I would like to mention for all your listeners if you ever have a chance to to get this book it's called Dvorak in, in, in Love is a wonderful exploration of Dvorak's romantic life but also he applied to a composition competition he sent the manuscript of some of his Slavonic dances to a competition in Austria and Brahms happened to be on the jury and he really, he thought Dvorak was an incredible talent. He loved the compositions and he sent them to his, his publisher. Dvorak ended up winning that prize a total of three times, but it was through that that this incredible mentorship relationship formed. And it was really Brahms who was able to put Dvorak on the worldwide map. But I think we, we need to pay him tribute for having these incredible compositions today from Dvorak. Yeah, and, and, and of course this came before 
Dvorak Symphony Number no. Nine, the New World Symphony, which everybody, everybody knows. knows, and that. I mean, Symphony Number no. Eight is is wonderful. And as you've talked about the the lyrical, optimistic quality, the, the happiness that it exudes is just infectious. But do you think it kind of gets overshadowed by Symphony Number no. Nine? And is that maybe part of why you wanted to put it on this program? Like, hey, here's this other great Dvorak. <laughs> Yeah, I do think, well, it's it's a fact, right, that the symphony number nine gets performed the most. And personally, as a musician, I, I almost sometimes cannot describe it why. Maybe it's because I traveled to Czech Republic when I was very young, but Dvorak's music really is something that's very, very close to my heart. And I love doing symphonies number seven, eight, or nine. They're kind of a staple of my personal uh, repertoire. I think all three symphonies are absolutely wonderful. And of course, Symphony Number no. Eight was written three years before Dvorak traveled to the United States, mm-hmm. and that, that's also a fascinating story. He he became the director of what at the time was the National Music Conservatory in New York, which no longer exists. But he held that position for I believe it was three years. And in the summer, he used to to go to to Spielville in in Iowa, where there is a very large Czech community. I wanted to mention one, and this is just a fun fact about Vorjak, but both in Prague and when he was in uh, in New York, he had this fascination with uh, with trains. Apparently in Prague at the train station and also in New York at Penn Station, he used to go and, and sit there and for hours, apparently sometimes it could be three or four hours, he would look, basically observe trains coming in and out the station and he would imagine the, the stories of all these people basically imagine where they're coming from every single person has a has a different story and that that really used to to inspire him and i think many many times in Borjak's symphonies and in his string quartet also in his american quartet in the fast movements you really get a little bit of uh, the drive and the sense of momentum you can almost imagine rhythmically hear trains accelerating or coming into the station or slowing down. But it, it's really one of these fun facts. I, I can almost imagine Vorjan standing there or sitting there and then watching trains come in and out of the station f- for hours. But I think it's also an element that made its way into into his music, yeah. rhythmically speaking. I think this has got another good movie plot to it right there. <laughs> Absolutely, <well>. yeah. <laughs> Um, well, and then moving on a little bit to the next concert in this season's Masterwork series, March 16th, is going to be very special. We're calling it the Concert Master Concerto. What can we look forward to in March? Oh, we have a wonderful program. And once again, it's it's, it's part of my mission when, when we have world-class talent to really promote it and to, to put it out there. We've been so lucky to welcome Oren Larson as Concert Master in our orchestra over the past two seasons. He's absolutely wonderful. He will be performing the Beethoven Violin Concerto. I almost wish we can we can get him uh, out for one of these uh, episodes because what I love so much about Oren, aside from his uh, incredible violin and concertmaster skills, is when he takes a project uh, on, it's, it, he doesn't just, just practice the piece and think about just the interpretation of that one piece. He really, he, he likes to dig. He's a very deep thinker and he likes to dig really deep and to look into the, the tradition of playing that particular piece. He's looking at how his violin played during that time. What did the violin look like? Were there 
anything different on the violin, what kind of strings were being used. He's, he's very interested in what can be done with the cadenza that is different. We know the cadenza is basically before the end of the piece, there's a moment where the, the orchestra stops on a fermata and it's, it's a moment where the instrumentalist is just by himself and it's a moment for displaying improvisation and, and, and virtuosity. And in his preparation, he's thinking about all these things. So I think we're gonna be in for a very, very, very special special treat. And think, speaking of Brahms, who was so influential in Borjak's career as a composer, we are ending the program with Brahms' second symphony. Also happens to be Brahms' perhaps most positive most happy symphony and it's also very dear to my heart because uh, when i first uh, auditioned for the position of music director on the second half the main piece was brahms fourth symphony so i'm thinking of this as a, a little bit of a continuation of a of a brahms cycle all right wonderful wonderful and we'll look forward to that conversation ahead of that show in march but uh, that is about all the time we have we've been taking a deeper dive into the southwest florida symphony's next masterworks concert from darkness to light Featuring Naples' own acclaimed pianist Alexandra Carlson, performing Prokofiev's Piano Concerto No. 3, as well as works by Czech composers Gideon Klein and Antonin Dvorak. We've been speaking with Maestro Rado Papanyu. Thanks, as always, for taking the time. Thank you so much for having us again. It's always a great pleasure. And we've been speaking with the Symphony's Community Outreach Ambassador, Robert Van Winkle. Again, Robert, always a good time. Thank you, John. I really appreciate it. And uh, tickets are still available for our February 3rd concert. If you call our box office and mention you heard this broadcast, I will offer you a special discount. Just mention WGCU Radio. All right. Again, that's Saturday, February 3rd at 7.30 at the Barbara B. Mann. Come early for the pre-concert lecture at 6.30. For more information, visit swflso.org. And if you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org slash gcl, or subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. For now, thanks for listening. I'm John Davis. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida.